chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the reading of God's word. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we return to your word again this evening, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. Receive these words of comfort, these words of good news in a world and a time and place where we are so often surrounded by bad news. I pray that you would comfort us and assure us by the gospel of Christ and prepare us to do the work that you would have us to do in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do live in a world of bad news. If you're not sure of this, all you have to do is maybe flip on the TV or the radio, log on to the internet for a few minutes, pick up a newspaper, It quickly becomes clear that we are living in a fallen and broken world. We are surrounded by violence, by unrest, by wars, threats of war, disease, by death, by lies. And it can be easy in this world of great troubles to despair, to wonder why, to even begin to doubt the goodness of God or the purposes of God and what we are facing. So much of what we experience in this life screams at us that this world is not how it is supposed to be. If we try to find hope, comfort, optimism in the things of this world, we are rather quickly and frequently disappointed. 
Where is hope? Where can we turn when all seems to be lost? When our loved ones are sick or die? When we lose our wealth? When we lose our possessions? When we face betrayal and broken relationships? When we suffer the trials of this life? Life can be very heavy. It can be very difficult. Almost at times unbearably so. And so in these times of darkness, we ask, is there any word from the Lord? We come to a text this evening that answers this question with a resounding yes. A word that in the darkest of times and in the worst possible situations in this life is meant to encourage us to give God's people hope, to refocus us on the things that are truly important and truly enduring This text that we read here in Isaiah 40 came to God's people in a time of darkness, in a time of bad news. Just prior to this, in Isaiah 39, Isaiah had delivered some very bad news to King Hezekiah and the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, because by now Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been destroyed by the Assyrians. But now the Babylonians, to whom Hezekiah had foolishly showed all of Judah's wealth, were coming to destroy them. They were coming to take their city, tear down their temple, and to take the people of Judah into captivity. Now, it would not happen right away. It would not happen in Isaiah's lifetime. It would come some decades later. But it is coming. And the reality that this was coming would have weighed heavily on the people and on the land. The land that they worked, the temple at which they worshipped, the monarchy and the priesthood in which they found their religious and national identity, all of that was going to be taken. In fact, even some of Hezekiah's children would be carried away, and they would be made eunuchs in the court of the king of Babylon. Basically, everything that they had been taught since the time of Moses had been related to how they were to worship God and to live in this land. We're talking centuries We're talking a period even much longer than the United States has been around. But that very long period was coming to an end. It would have been a devastating blow for Judah to hear such bad news, and most would not hear it. This is why many of the Old Testament prophets faced ridicule, persecution, and even death for bringing this kind of bad news from the Lord. Isaiah himself had to know the weight of this message he was delivering. But in light of this bad news of chapter 39, the first words of chapter 40 are comfort. Now what could possibly be good enough news to bring comfort in the face of such darkness? For news that bad, the comfort has to be really good. And the comfort in chapter 40 is good. It is actually the best possible comfort. In this passage, we see the promise that God himself will come to his people and deliver them from warfare and death. He will forgive their sins. He will bring ultimate relief from the coming dark trial. And so we will look at these verses tonight at the four aspects of the promise that is given here. We see the comfort found in this promise. We see the Christ revealed in this promise. The certainty that what is promised to come will come to pass, and then finally the calling of a people. And it would have not only been good news in Isaiah's time, 
but it remains good news for us even now. So again, we have the comfort of the promise, the Christ of the promise, the certainty of the promise, and then the calling of a people. So first we look at the comfort of the promise in verses 1 and 2. Now this passage opens with an imperative, a command. It doesn't quite come out so clearly in English, this word comfort. God is commanding his messengers, of which Isaiah is one, to comfort his people. The bad news has come, and terrible news it is. Anything intended to comfort and console the people after such bad news will need to be significant. Someone reading through Isaiah might even get a little bit of whiplash here coming to chapter 40 after how bad the news was in chapter 39. There's this warfare, this plunder, this deportation that is coming. What do you mean that warfare is ended? You just said it was coming. As judgment for iniquity is coming, how now is iniquity pardoned? Was God changing his mind? Is God being inconsistent? No. God is not changing his mind. All those terrible events of the Babylonian captivity are certainly coming. But Isaiah here is seeing beyond the captivity, beyond the deportation from the land to something else. Now what then could this comfort be? Well, the first thing that is offered is reassurance during the coming calamity, even before Isaiah delivers the news of ultimate relief. Now note here who God is asking his messengers to comfort, his people. The word in Hebrew is Ami. You could contrast this with another famous use of Ami in Hosea 1.9, where Hosea, as a prophet, is ordered to name his son Lo-Ami to show that they are not God's people. But in Isaiah's words, we see God's grace to his people. Despite their unfaithfulness, despite their sin, God will keep his people. Even with the temple gone, with the Davidic king dethroned, God will preserve a remnant, a people for his name. That would have been comfort in Isaiah's day, and it is to us as well. We are often unfaithful. We often sin. We're often plagued by the uncertainty of the world that we live in as it becomes all the more hostile to Christianity, as it finds new ways to flaunt its evil and its wickedness. We fail to keep the law of God perfectly. We become party to wickedness in various ways. But despite all of this, God keeps us as his people. He does not let go of us. He does not break his covenant. There's an exhortation here to Isaiah to speak tenderly, to speak comfort for the shattered and beleaguered people of Judah, for the people of God. The message would need to be delivered in such a way as to provide reassurance. See, there is a proper time and a proper way to bring good news, especially in the face of bad news. See, not only do we see a lot of bad news in our day, It's often delivered in ways that are meant to be inflammatory and prejudicial and biased. Those who deliver God's good news are to consider how it is delivered, both to our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ when we encourage, exhort, and rebuke one another, 
and how we deliver the gospel to the outside world. Sometimes we tell the truth, but we do it the wrong way. We're harsh when we should be tender. We do not take into account who we are talking to and what they might be going through. Or we can be overly trite and simplistic, offering platitudes that don't really have any substance to someone in the deepest, darkest trials of life. So we need to know not just what to speak, but how to speak it. The gospel on its own terms can be offensive enough. Passages like 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 remind us that the gospel is foolishness to the world. To tell people about Jesus is hard enough. Are we, by our conduct and by the way that we deliver that message, producing a further stumbling block beyond what is already there? Now, not only is the tone of the promise in Isaiah 40 tender and encouraging, but so is the contents. Warfare is ended. Now, God's people aren't going to see that realized in their days from when Isaiah is speaking. Those Babylonians were coming, and it was going to be a violent, ugly, painful, and deadly conflict. But there is a promise, even if vague, of a future world without war, where there will be no more struggles to keep and maintain the land against foes. We do know this to be true, that Christ will one day rule over the new heavens and the new earth, and that warfare and death and all the things that we fear and all the things that cause us discomfort in this life will no longer be a part of it. We also see here that iniquity is pardoned. Now, this is important when we think about what Isaiah has dealt with up to this point. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah were heavy on language of judgment. Is the language of God prosecuting his people and the other nations for their sin, pronouncing judgments, pronouncing curses, pronouncing destruction. However, what is promised here is a pardon, a payment in full for the transgressions. Let's think about this in our day. If you get a pardon from someone, say the governor or the president, it is essentially for legal purposes as if the law-breaking never occurred, even if the law-breaking clearly did occur. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of a pardon in history was when President Richard Nixon was pardoned by Gerald Ford after the Watergate scandal. Does that mean that he didn't do anything? Well, it would seem that he definitely did something. But what the pardon offered was deliverance from the legal punishment due for the crime. This is the same sort of deliverance that we receive in Christ. We all sin, falling short of the glory of God. There are consequences. There is legal punishment. But Christ satisfies the legal punishment for our sin at the cross and pardons us. None of that guilt, none of that penalty remains. For his people. Verse 2 says that God's people have received double for their sins. One commentator here says that the word double here, it means doubled over. It means like if you take your hands and fold them together, it's a perfect match. The payment received is exactly correspondent to the transgression itself. A full and final atonement is made. This is only truly accomplished in Christ, and it is accomplished perfectly and completely. It's not, say, like the 
treadmill of works in Roman Catholicism where you receive your baptism and then you're on your own to retain your salvation by your good works. No, if you are in Christ, your salvation is complete. You have peace with God and will be delivered on the last day. Isaiah's words are not some short-term temporal deliverance for the nation-state of Israel. He is seeing and proclaiming Christ, which brings us to our second point. After the comfort of the promise, we see the Christ of the promise in verses 3 through 5. And as we look at these verses, we might think that we've heard this somewhere before. We've recently been looking at the Gospel of John. In John 1, we see these words from Isaiah being fulfilled there. The voice crying, the messenger, is John the Baptist, who makes the way for the coming of Christ. This language here also looks back. Looks back to the days of the Exodus in the wilderness, not so much the people's journey through the desert, but God coming through the desert to deliver his people from their bondage and affliction. We see this in texts like Deuteronomy 33.2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. And again in Judges 5, 4, and 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. You see this language of God racing through the desert to deliver his people. What is promised through Isaiah to the people of God is God himself coming to save and deliver them from their sins, from violence, from warfare. It is bigger than a return to the land and the temple and the priesthood. Now they would, after the Babylonian captivity, return to the land for a time. There would be a temple. There would not be a Davidic king. That never reappeared after the exile. There was something of a limited deliverance after the exile. No, what Isaiah is talking about is the ultimate deliverance of God's people from the effects of sin and death and the fall. It is one man coming as prophet, priest, and king, coming as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament economy. While Judah will lose many things in the decades following Isaiah's prophecy, what they will ultimately receive is something far greater. Something that makes the troubles of this world seem far less. The sort of truth that makes someone like Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4 that his problems, and he had many, were light momentary afflictions. To to give the people perspective on just how great this coming deliverance would be, We see supernatural language. We see the leveling of the ground, the removal of hills, the straight desert highway. It shows the ease with which God will come. He is coming in power. He is coming with ease. He is mighty to save. He is sovereign over all things, all of creation. And that which seems difficult or impossible to us, He will do without challenge or delay. And to what ends? The glory of the Lord being revealed. Jesus comes to reveal to us the glory of God. 
John 1.14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ came and revealed the glory of God because He is God. Emmanuel, God with us. Do not let the fact that Isaiah is right. The fact that Isaiah is writing in the Old Testament fool you. Isaiah is talking about Jesus. Many people like to take prophetical texts and books like Isaiah, and when they ask the question, what does this mean to us today? They're looking for things like Apache helicopters and Russia and the founding of a one-world government. That's not how these texts apply to us today. They apply to us because they tell us about Jesus. Jesus is all over Isaiah. He is all over all of Scripture. Now this is a big promise that we hear and that Judah heard through Isaiah. It's such a big promise that some might be inclined to doubt. What was the certainty? How did they know that this was going to happen? How do we know that warfare will end that sin will be atoned for, and that the glory of God will be revealed to all people. That brings us to our next point. After the comfort of the promise and the Christ of the promise, we see the certainty of the promise in verses 6 through 8. Isaiah is told here to cry out. And what he is told to cry out about is the futility and the frailty of earthly life. To man, he says, You see those flowers of the field? One year while I was in seminary in Southern California, we had an unusual amount of rain. It's usually a kind of deserty area. They don't get a lot of rain there. But since they did get a lot of rain that year, all the deserts around that were normally dead and dry and desolate, they started blooming with all these flowers to where it came to be known as the super bloom. It was all these people flocking from the city and causing all sorts of traffic problems and stuff, trying to see the flowers, trying to see the super bloom. But within a few months, the desert went back to a desert. The sun did its thing, and all those spring flowers withered and died. And so what is happening in this passage is God is saying to man, see that? That's you. Your life here is temporary. What you do here, there's a decent chance it won't be remembered for very long. Eventually, you will wither and die. We all, like the flowers, will waste away. There will be little sign that we ever existed. But God's words are different. They are certain. They will endure forever. For proof of this, look no further than God's words given here to Isaiah. It is now some 2,700 or so years later, and we are still reading them. We're still studying them. We're still finding truth and life within them. We know that because of what they foretold and what has come to pass in history, they have been validated and confirmed as God's words. We're not reading too many other things from 2,700 years ago outside of Scripture, but God has preserved His words So we see how they have proven true. Even at the time of Isaiah, the people of Judah could read their scriptures and they could look back and see God's faithfulness, see God's deliverance, see God's hand in everything that had come before. 
When God says he will act, he will act. God's words stand forever. This is a great comfort and assurance to us. What we read in Scripture about the future abolition of death, about the final judgment of God's enemies, about how as Revelation 21 promises us, someday God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We can be certain that even if we don't see this in our earthly lifetime, and much of it we almost certainly won't, it will come to pass. We have a confidence and assurance beyond this life that God will remember his promises to all of his people. Even as his people face uncertainty, difficulty, warfare, deportation, exile, God will not forget us. God will keep his covenant. He will save his people. And this leads us to our fourth and final point. After the comfort of the promise, the Christ of the promise, and the certainty of the promise, we come to the calling of a people in verses 9 through 11. The messenger is told to go to a high mountain and to shout. Now, if you've ever been on the top of a mountain, it's hard to resist the urge to do this, to yell out and hear the echo that reverberates for a long time and reaches for miles. What Isaiah is being told here is that this message of salvation should be proclaimed like that, far and wide. Get up to the highest place where you can yell the loudest and get the word to the most people. Without fear, without shame. This amazing news of God himself coming into creation to deliver people from sin and death requires a loud, wide announcement. And what is the content of this announcement? Behold your God. The God whom you have trusted in and waited for is coming, and he is here. He is here to judge, as verse 10 indicates, with a strong ruling arm. There is recompense, there is judgment, there is punishment for evil, and there is reward for good. But there is not only the strong arm, there is also the gentle fatherly arms of verse 11 of a shepherd that gathers in his lambs. Christ is that shepherd, even from the Old Testament. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, John 10, 11. Leaves 99 sheep to find the one who has gone astray, Matthew 18, 12 keeps his sheep in such a way that no one can snatch them out of his hand. John 10, 28. The coming of God is a fearful thing for his enemies as it is certain judgment and destruction. Before his sheep, for his people, it is nothing to fear. It is the promise of love, the promise of life, the promise of deliverance. God will carry his sheep in his bosom. He will protect them. He will preserve them. He will give them perseverance. There is a promise that he will gently lead. He instructs us. He teaches us for sanctification and growth in the knowledge of the truth. We are guaranteed these things in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Christ came for a people. He came to call a people to himself. So we have seen tonight in this text the comfort 
of God's promise to his people. We have seen the Christ of that promise. We have seen the certainty of this promise as it is based in God's unchanging word. And we have seen the calling of a people, which is the purpose of that promise. What we have seen is Isaiah preaching the gospel centuries before Christ. What Isaiah saw dimly, we have seen revealed to us explicitly. God has entered into creation to make an end of sin and death and to draw people to himself. This is truly good news, great news, the best of news, even in the face of whatever bad news the world may throw at us. See, we may face many trials and uncertainties in this life. We do not know what tomorrow brings. We face a world that increasingly hates the church and hates God's truth. We face all of the illnesses and adversities and struggles of this life. We even face the consequences of our sin and others' sin against us. But we do not have to fear. We do not have to despair. We do not have to wonder who is in control or what is going to happen. Because God has come. And God is coming again. And he will make all things new. And he will make all things right. And so may that be our comfort this day this year, and in all of our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the comfort it brings, for the glory of Christ that was revealed to Isaiah so many years ago, hundreds of years before Christ came, so that we can see how your word endures forever and does not and cannot fail. I pray that as we celebrate Christ this time of year, that we would all have the confidence of the comfort that he brings and the salvation that he has brought. And I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim this truth to a lost and dying world and to love you and to love and serve our neighbor as we ought. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn tonight is number 161. If you would please.